Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 163, A Changing of the Guard. Now, it's just been a few days since I recorded the last episode, so no new patrons, but hey, anyone wants to consider donating it on Patreon, you know, it always makes a, makes a big difference for us. It allows me to, as I say, shamelessly buy the very, very expensive niche academic books I use for a lot of this, uh, and it's always just great to hear from you. So even if you don't want to support, feel free to get in touch. But besides that, let's get into it. Last time, we covered the founding of the Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, a small group that will soon become a defining force in the politics of Bulgaria and the region. Then, we looked at the untimely death of the young Alexander Battenberg, the birth of Boris, the new heir to the throne, and finally, the ousting of Stefan Stambolov as a result of a kind of secretive back-channel campaign by Boris, or sorry, by Boris, by Ferdinand, based around uh, a sort of invented affair and a lot of mud-throwing. As a result, Stambolov's resignation has finally been accepted by a Ferdinand emboldened by the birth of his son and the death of his predecessor. So let's begin by discussing Stambolov's legacy a bit more. I know we've talked about it off and on throughout the, his, his I think, seven-year reign, but I, I keep finding more and more new information, more new interesting uh, lines to talk about. And in particular, uh, I was able to finally get my hand on Tatiana Konstantinova's book on Bulgarian elections between 1878 and 1946, and so I wanted to use some of her analysis on Stambolov's legacy and how it affected Bulgarian politics and elections. Konstantinova wrote, quote, The Stambolov period gave rise to a very dangerous trend in Bulgarian politics. The violence and arbitrary arrest executed by the police and the interference of administrative staff representatives in the pre-election campaign led to a distortion of the election returns. Often, the electorate was forced to vote, which contradicted that part of the election law which guaranteed non-obligatory participation. The bloody skirmishes, arrests of candidates for deputies on election day, falsified counting of the ballot papers, all had one goal. Only approved candidates, government partisans, were to be elected, thus ensuring obedience and loyalty to the government. The aim to ensure victory at any cost strengthened the accumulated conviction among the electorate that the final result was premeditated, and it was all the same whether the voters participated or not those in power would get their way, end quote. Now, personally, you know, looking at Bulgarian politics today, that last sentence still, I think, really holds true. I'll talk about that more in a minute. But that that long, those two paragraphs really stuck out as me as a good kind of summation of what was problematic about Stambolov. And indeed, as I've said, his legacy is a deeply complicated one. On the one hand, he did bring new stability and economic growth to Bulgaria. He defended its independence against Russian attempts to transform it into a puppet state. 
He expanded Bulgarian influence in Macedonia. He successfully found a new monarch, which contributed to the aforementioned stability. You could say that, you know, however bad Stambulov was, if it weren't for him, perhaps Bulgaria would have become essentially a Russian puppet state, uh, probably a worse outcome than how things went under Stambulov. It's very complicated. Now, Duncan Perry writes how Stambulov rooted out and ended brigandage. He created a large and well-trained army, thereby bringing considerable social order out of chaos. He, along with Ferdinand, saw the construction of railroads and ports and helped develop natural resources. International security was achieved, and the nation began to develop material prosperity. It cannot be said that Stambulov industrialized the nation. Bulgaria remained an overwhelmingly agrarian society. Nevertheless, the infrastructure of a modern capitalist economy had been created. State bureaucracy, banks, lawyers, railroads, the elimination of Turkish feudalism, a decline in handicraft enterprises, and he goes on. But I'll end the quote there. So, you know, Perry does a good job there, kind of summarizing what Stambulov accomplished. But sadly for Stambulov, many forget these accomplishments or, or forgot them over time and really only remembered that they came about due to the brutality of a virtual dictatorship. And critically, as Konstantinov pointed out, this did lasting harm to Bulgaria's political culture. And again, I think one of the things that holds Bulgaria back even today is its political culture, which again, still holds a lot of the legacies of Stambulov's era, although you know, a lot has happened since then. You can't fully blame Stambulov. But I think it's fascinating that so many of the dynamics you see right now, you can see in the 1890s. But again, I think you could argue that without Stambulov, Russia may have succeeded in destabilizing Bulgaria and turning it into a puppet state. I think that's a, a pretty valid argument. So Stambulov protected Bulgaria's independence, and he did very real and lasting damage. So in the end, honestly, I feel a bit ambivalent about him. I don't doubt his patriotism, that he sincerely believed he was doing what was right for Bulgaria, and that only his methods could maintain its independence and give it the space it needed to develop. But again, I still see that legacy of his methods in modern Bulgarian politics, and it still definitely, definitely held his country's political culture back. And yeah, even today in Bulgaria, voter participation is low, and many people have the attitude that Konstantinova mentioned, where they don't believe their voice is important. They believe outcomes are predetermined, that conspiracy is behind most major events in Bulgaria. Konstantinova herself argues that the lack of civic participation was in part due to pre-election terror, to disillusionment with party politics, and the reality that many peasants had to walk for miles to reach the nearest polling place. It's not like the government made it easy to participate in elections or made it clear that those elections mattered. But more than that, Konstantinova argues that the Ottoman legacy was more responsible for creating a feeling that problems would be solved without the need for the participation of the average person. So she doesn't fully blame Stambulov for that. It definitely existed before him. She wrote, quote, It was more important to ensure their daily bread than to influence the government. Having lived in conditions of foreign domination for five centuries, the Bulgarians did not develop conscientious respect for state institutions. 
They needed some time to realize that after 1878, it was their country, not the Ottoman Empire, where they lived and where they were given the constitutional right to choose the government of Bulgaria, end quote. Now, Perry, jumping back to him, wrote how, quote, Stumbleoff was, quote, survived by the system of favoritism in a land devoid of democratic traditions. Ottoman governance, corrupt and weak by the 19th century, and repressive Russian Tsarism were the two systems of statecraft he knew best, and it is hardly surprising that he evolved an authoritarian approach. End quote. So Perry there is pointing out that, okay, where was Stemloff supposed to get his inspiration? You know, the, the two systems that were by far the most familiar to him, and frankly, most Bulgarians, were both deeply authoritarian systems. I mean, Stamlov himself once said, quote, All of my arbitrary acts were performed for the good of the country and generally in the face of some great national danger, end quote. Again, I, I think he, he thought that, although frankly, that wasn't always the case. But many people and many forces are responsible for the modern state of Bulgaria's politics. Even after Stamlov resigned, the harms to Bulgaria's political culture would only continue as Ferdinand appointed Stoilov as the country's new prime minister, instead of using an election to decide on one. Thus, the election which followed, which I'll talk about later in this episode, was really more just to confirm the choice that Ferdinand had already made. So, again, this isn't just Stefan Stambolov's responsibility, it's not just his fault. Virtually everyone is feeding into, frankly, the reality that most Bulgarians on the ground could see that mm, elections didn't really change much, and they didn't have a genuine say via those elections. But to be fair, Ferdinand had initially approached a few other people to be prime minister, but all of them had declined. And this interim period where Ferdinand was still trying to find a government for after Stambolov was quite chaotic. And both pro and anti-Stambolov rallies thronged the streets of Sofia, with demonstrations often spiraling out of control, leading to injuries, property damage, and even deaths. So yeah, Ferdinand was still, to be fair, under quite a bit of pressure to find a new prime minister, to get a government formed, and to get back to some post-Stambolov normalcy. Now, although he had just been asked to form a government, Ferdinand honestly didn't much like Stoilov, and was concerned that he knew all the details about how Ferdinand had been selected for the throne, because Stoilov was one of the three men who initially approached him all the way back in Vienna. But, Stoilov was an adept political operator and was willing to give Ferdinand free reign in foreign policy, so he was a decent choice from the prince's perspective. Now, upon coming to power, Stoilov reformed the Conservative Party into the new People's Party, a rather ironic name considering they had virtually no support outside of elite circles. And you'll remember, basically, the Conservatives have had power quite a bit thus far in Bulgaria's modern history, but they have really never had a popular mandate. Now, this new People's Party was headed by Stoilov, Nachevic, and Ivan Geshov. They advocated for a rapprochement with Russia, lowered taxes, restrictions on voting rights, a smaller national assembly divided into two houses, and more power to Ferdinand. So, basically, this was the elite political program, right? M you know, more power towards a smaller group of people and lower taxes pretty simple. So although Stoilov strongly disliked Stambolov's methods, 
he soon found himself using the same press censorship and other hard-arm tools to ensure that his government was covered, quote-unquote, fairly. So, yeah, Stoilov saw himself as kind of uh, a new chance for Bulgaria, a, a hard kind of uh, stop for the Stefan Stambolov period, but so many of Stambolov's methods were just too convenient to give up, and so, as we'll see, they kind of bleed into this new era. But not everything would stay the same. One key policy change Stoilov made soon after coming to power was to once again allow armed bands to gather and conduct anti-Ottoman operations in Macedonia from bases in Bulgaria. Now, remember, Stambolov wanted to restrict such activities in Macedonia because he felt the best way to expand Bulgarian influence there was by currying favor with the Ottomans in order to gain concessions. You'll recall this has generally worked pretty well, as the Bulgarian exarchate has been allowed to expand its influence in Macedonia, and as I'll discuss more shortly, that translated into more schools, which translated into more Macedonians receiving a pro-Bulgarian education and kind of fulfilling the foreign policy goals of Sofia. But this new policy was to cozy up to Russia and annoy the Ottomans by allowing guerrilla activities against them in Macedonia. Although, ironically, this change in policy actually annoyed Russia, because the Tsar did not want trouble stirring up in the Balkans at this time. So, yeah, this whole change in policy in Macedonia... It was pushed heavily by a lot of uh, hardcore Macedonian activists, and so the government felt pressured to do it, but it did harm their other foreign policy goals, like fixing relations with Russia. But just in general, what was happening in Macedonia at this time? Well, start with a bit of context. In his book on the Macedonian revolutionary organizations, Duncan Perry recounts a case where a British journalist was in Macedonia in 1903 and 1904. So jumping ahead a little bit, but... I think the story is, you know, applies to this era as well, we can say. Now, this journalist was speaking to some Christian Slav boys in a village near Ohrid. He pointed a, out a ruined fortress to them, and he asked, who built that? And they responded, the free men. The boys further explained that these free men were their ancestors. When the journalist asked whether the free men were Serbs, Bulgarians, Greeks, or Turks, the boys simply responded that they, quote, weren't Turks, they were Christians, end quote. Now, I like this story because I think it gives a good, real example of how a lot of people in Macedonia approached questions of nationality. Now, that is to say, it's very easy for us to assume today that everyone in the past had a national identity like we generally do, but as I've talked about many times in this podcast, this was often not the case. In Macedonia, in this time in the late 19th century, Everyday people might have identified as being Christian, or just as a resident of a particular town or village, or as a raya, i.e. a non-Muslim, according to the Ottoman system. But they rarely identified with an ethnic group, with some possible exceptions being Greeks living on the coast, some Albanians living in the west, Romani knew who they were uh, because they had pretty cohesive communities, and maybe the transient Vlach groups that lived in Macedonia. So there were some groups that had pretty hardened identities, mostly because they were sort of transient or they had a long history of it. But particularly the, the kind of Slavic groups living in Macedonia, their identities didn't tend to be very cohesive or, or specific. Thus, 
the self-identification of the people in Macedonia was fought over intensely. Serb, Greek, and Bulgarian organizations and individuals sought to influence people through scholarships, establishing schools, building churches, providing priests, and spreading propaganda of their various ethnic groups. This resulted in occasionally absurd situations, where I read one example of three brothers of a family and each one identified as a member of a different nation. I think one said he was Serb, one said he was Greek, one said he was Bulgarian, which it seems crazy to us, but each one of them, you know, was influenced by some of that kind of propaganda, that education, all those elements I just mentioned. Still, the two most powerful forces in this fight over Macedonia were Bulgaria and Greece. Greece, because the title Greek brought some prestige and Greece had obviously a very old history and presence in Macedonia, although they hardly made up a majority of the whole territory. But they were also aided by their past domination of the Orthodox Church there. I mentioned that churches and education were a key way of spreading you know, national identities in Macedonia, and so obviously the old Greek-dominated church gave them some advantage. But Bulgarians were catching up, with most Macedonian Christians belonging to the Bulgarian-aligned exarchate by this point. Serbia was kind of late to the game and hadn't made a lot of progress by this point. So, by the mid-1890s, around 100 to 200,000 Macedonian Slavs, actually, had migrated from that territory into Bulgaria. So besides the battle for the, you know, Macedonians in Macedonia, Bulgaria has this other element that Serbia and Greece don't of a rather large Macedonian Slavic uh, sort of migratory community that have settled in its territory. Now, many of these Macedonian Slavs settled in Sofia, helping to swell its population early on. And frankly, even today, a large number of Sofiansi, people from Sofia, have some Macedonian uh, ancestry. And this helped contribute to, to Sofia kind of transitioning from the sleepy town it had been in the 1870s to the rather bustling place it was by the 1890s. And again, by the 1890s, about 26 to 29% of Sofia's population were ethnic Macedonians, uh, many becoming well-educated and prominent citizens of the city, soon making up 33% of military officers, 43% of government officials, and 37% of ordained priests. So it's rather interesting that even though you know these were you know migrants coming into Sofia and settling, although frankly, again, considering how small the population of Sofia was in the 1870s, nearly everyone uh, was a new migrant or the child of a new migrant. But despite, you know, you'd think they'd have a disadvantage having come from an outside place, although Macedonia's not far, still the Macedonians who came to Sofia were actually overrepresented in many of these more prominent positions in Bulgarian society. They also created new neighborhoods, which are still visible today. For example, if you get off at metro stations like Vardar, named after the main river passing through the territory known as kind of Vardar Macedonia. And again, if you talk to people today, you'll find many have Macedonian ancestors and interesting stories about how they came to Bulgaria. But thinking about the political situation in the 1890s, I just mentioned how Macedonia was filling up with young nationalistic graduates without good job prospects. Um, this was a big problem, right? So you had all these countries uh, investing heavily in schools in Macedonia because they want those schools to educate them in such a way that they, you know, 
become proponents of their national ideas. So, you know, Bulgaria wants to build Bulgarian schools to train Macedonians to say that they are Bulgarian. But a side effect of this is that you have a lot of well-educated people and the Macedonian economy is just tiny by at this point, right? There's, there's very few prospects for a well-educated person. And accompanying this is the reality that, right, a lot of the, the Bulgarian elite, as I said, are now Macedonian refugees or the children of Macedonian refugees. So all this is creating a situation where you have, yeah, many young, educated, nationalistic young men who don't have a lot of good job prospects. Uh, and you have a lot of powerful and influential Macedonians in Bulgaria. And both these groups want change in Macedonia. They, they really want to advocate for a new policy and for, in particular, Bulgaria to be more aggressive in trying to gain autonomy, independence, or just outright annexation of Macedonia. And so that, in part, is what was pushing this new Stoilov government to change its Macedonian policy. All this was pressuring Stambolov quite a bit, but you know his uh, strong arm tactics were enough to keep the course. But new government, they're caving in to all these people and what they want. So together, taking all these things, it's very easy to see how and why Macedonia was becoming such a powder keg. Three young Balkan states all want it. New revolutionary organizations dedicated to one outcome or another are popping up regularly. And the man who is so ardently pursuing a kind of slow, gradual path towards Bulgarian control of the region, Stambolov, was now out of power. Perry wrote how, quote, Stambolov held the militants in check, but in the process created a police state. His successor Stoilov would not and could not do the same. Thus, Ferdinand and his new government had to carefully balance the need for peace with their neighbor and Ferdinand's own aspirations for recognition and expansion against the necessity of pacifying the sometimes rabid and unpredictable pro-Macedonian advocates of violent confrontation with the sublime port. End quote. So you, you can see yeah, how the Stoilov government and Prince Ferdinand are all playing a very delicate balancing game with people who are quite angry and like have very, have very strong opinions about what should ha the policy should be in Macedonia. Now, I'm rather sad to say that all this really remains a major point of contention. Uh, I think Bulgaria just recently finally lifted its veto of Macedonian ascension to the EU, but still at this moment, arguments over that are still major talking points in Bulgarian and Macedonian, North Macedonian now, uh, politics. And, you know, even just recently I saw that, you know, many people in Bulgarian politics today were labeling the people who were willing to lift the veto on Macedonian joining the bloc as national traitors. So yeah, blood still runs hot on this issue, as most of you probably know. But getting back to Stoilov's new government, besides the change on Macedonian policy, one of his first moves was to fire thousands of mayors and other government officials he considered to be Stambolov loyalists. However, as Perry points out, quote, since many of the new appointees had neither experience nor a power base, they gravitated towards the use of force and corruption. Complaints poured into Sofia, perhaps as many as 15,000 between May 1894 and May 1895, concerning official abuses. The Stoilovstina, You'll, you'll recall the Stambolovstina as the, the term for the period of Stambolov, so this is the period of Stoilov, began to resemble its predecessor's regime, end quote. 
Stoilov also freed many political prisoners like Metropolitan Clement and several who were involved in overthrowing Battenberg back in the day, and even some people connected to the murder of Belchev. So, in particular, Petko Karavelov was freed from the Black Mosque in Sofia, and Alexander Tsankov was allowed to return to Bulgaria. So, again, the Stoilov regime is falling into many of the same traps as the Stambolov regime and is already becoming corrupt and kind of power-abusing, let's say. Uh, but he is freeing political prisoners, which we'll see how that plays out. Remember, lots of these people were political prisoners or were exiled from the country because they, you know, wanted to work with the, the Russians in order to overthrow the Bulgarian government and make it a kind of Russian puppet, or because they were murdering ministers and, and doing all kinds of rather nasty things. So the long-term ramifications that we will have to see. And within a month or so of accepting Stamblos' resignation, Ferdinand was trying to reconcile with him, actually. The prince actually wrote him a commendation in which he praised the former minister-president as an exemplary Bulgarian patriot, and the two met for a chat, a rather civil chat that lasted about two hours, while a large crowd was gathering outside the palace and shouting. Afterwards, Stamblov refused to sneak out via a side entrance, and so he was met with a crowd that was shouting, down with Stambolov, down with the tyrant, down with the usurper, end quote. Now, as Stambolov calmly passed through the crowd, hurling abuse at him with his bodyguard, one man actually took out a knife, but Stambolov's bodyguard pursued him, per persuaded him sort of to back down. But it was clearer than ever that Stambolov's life was in danger by this point. He was relying on loyal police officers soon, who were basically armed to the teeth and surrounded his home where he was basically now trapped. If he left his home, his life would be in danger. And during this time, Stambolov's relationship with Ferdinand deteriorated once again. This led to Stambolov rather unwisely telling a German newspaper a variety of negative things about Ferdinand which only he knew, including remarks which hinted at his alleged bisexuality. Now, I'm going to quote what Stambolov told the newspaper man here. He said, quote, The prince is undoubtedly a clever man, but he wastes his cleverness on petty matters. He is nervous and excitable. He reads everything that is written about him, perhaps some 50 newspapers a day, and tears one into pieces if it contains disparaging remarks. I have often told him, do not read so many papers, but study public affairs. Get a French or an English colonel to teach you the elements of military knowledge so that you may be able to understand your war minister. But he thinks of nothing but his court, his uniforms, etc. Even with regard to his recognition, his great object is to be able to travel abroad as a reigning prince, to show himself in his Bulgarian uniform, and to be received at a railway station by a general. Of course, now he can do what he likes but he must not think that he will be allowed to sacrifice Bulgaria for such a consideration. End quote. Now, Stambolov went on to say, quote, No, the prince will not gain anything by this kind of humiliating hermaphroditic policy. He is simply gambling away the little popularity which he still enjoys in Bulgaria and which he owes to me. For, after all, if I am not popular today, it is because I have worked for the prince and exposed myself like a father for his child. I took the responsibility for measures, some of them even of a dangerous character, in order to shield him, and so that his popularity should not suffer. End quote. Now, apologies for using a rather outdated term, but the use of the phrase hermaphroditic policy was the one that was sort of read to allude to Ferdinand's bisexuality. But 
Even without that, you can see why Ferdinand was pretty upset by what Stambolov said. But I thought it was worth quoting this at length because it also offers a pretty unfiltered glimpse into what Stambolov really thought about Ferdinand and thought about this moment. Now, Stambolov soon admitted that he had spoken in anger and that he regretted what he had said, but he was still charged with defamation and an enormous bail was demanded. To the surprise of the court, his friend showed up with gold and paid it and soon Stambolov was out on bail. When he left the court, his carriage was pelted with rocks. Soon, though, the government began going even further to pursue Stambolov, uh, creating formal inquiries into potential crimes committed by his regime. But they went even further, bringing in prostitutes to accuse him of rape and seduction, even of, statu- even of statutory rape in some instances. An English journalist wrote how the prostitutes were outside of the courtroom joking about how the police had come to fetch them from Sophia's brothels in order to bring them in and perjure themselves. And, well, these cases were soon dropped. But the reputational damage was done. Between this and the Savov affair, Stambolov was now commonly known as the fornicator, despite none of these accusations seeming to be true. As all the attacks on Stambolov intensified, the country gradually turned towards new elections. Unsurprisingly, Stoilov needed these elections to ideally give him some real support in the National Assembly, and leading up to them, Stoilov's People's Party didn't really attract a broad anti-Stambolov coalition as he had hoped. The Radoslavov liberals refused to join and ran on their own, and the newly freed Petko Karavelov reformed his old liberal party, again separate from the new Stoilov kind of coalition. Stambolov, for his part, called on his supporters to boycott these elections. Ultimately, much of the voting was just rigged, as it had been under Stambolov, with voter participation only reaching 26%. The newly elected National Assembly did not contain a single Stambolov supporter. But Stoilov did manage to cobble together a ruling coalition of conservatives, Radoslavov liberals, southern Bulgarian unionists, and some Tsankov supporters the new majority was heavily Russophile. It was also really the first time the conservatives had actually successfully formed a ruling majority in the assembly. It only took them 15 years of trying. But again, in case it wasn't clear, this wasn't a majority of conservatives, but a majority run by conservatives. Soon, Stoilov was using his old tricks to get what he wanted out of the assembly, holding sessions at night when few opponents were would be there, or basically when they were less likely to attend, and changing a policy that all proposed laws had to be read, read in full, which allowed the assembly to pass dozens of lengthy new laws with very little oversight and in very a very short period of time. But, okay, this is what was happening kind of domestically, but outside of Bulgaria, how was this new government being received? Now, the Stoilov government had assured basically all of its neighbors that it intended to continue Stambolov's foreign policy. But no one believed them, and they could see that the government had, for example, as we know, shifted its attitude towards Macedonia. But what about Ferdinand's main foreign policy goal, getting himself recognized? Well, despite Russophiles now controlling the government, Russia was still annoyed by the new Macedonian policy. Indeed, when Ferdinand attempted to send messages to start to build support there and maybe change how Russia viewed him, he was met with silence. Likewise, the Ottomans were deeply frustrated by the shift of policy on Macedonia. Austria-Hungary, meanwhile, was annoyed at the ascent of Russophiles in Sofia, so 
Really, no one was happy with the Stoilov government. But Ferdinand was still determined to obtain recognition from Russia, knowing that once that happened, the other great powers would happily follow. His mother actually traveled to meet Tsar Alexander III in person to plead their case, but the Tsar still held firm. However, this refusal ended up meaning very little because the Tsar died of a kidney disease in November at the age of 49. He was succeeded by his 26-year-old son, Nicholas. And just like that, Russia was now ruled by Tsar Nicholas II, which meant that the door had finally opened for potential recognition of Ferdinand. And that's where we'll finish today, roughly at the end of 1894. Stambulov is a man under siege, beset by angry crowds, threats on his life, and a seemingly endless list of new legal cases against him. Meanwhile, his successor seems to be continuing many of his abusive and anti-democratic policies and not really finding much success in foreign policy either. But aside from the end of the Stambulovstina, two other major shifts have occurred. Bulgaria has adopted a far more aggressive policy towards Macedonia, and the death of Tsar Alexander III of Russia has opened up the way for reconciliation between Sofia and St. Petersburg. Next time, we'll see how Ferdinand will take advantage of this new political opening, how the new Macedonian policy will quickly change things on the ground, and just what will happen to poor Stefan Stampilov. So, I'll see you then. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. Check out everything connected with this uh, this episode at bghistorypodcast.com. Uh, everything is linked in the description below. <laughs>